grab your Bibles and, and open them up to the, the book of Philippians. And as you do, I want you to think about where we've come so far, because this is week four for us. Um, and Paul's talked about joy, which is the theme of our study, the theme of the epistle, got joy, right? And yet he's talked about joy in, in maybe a way that we haven't necessarily thought that we would think about joy. Um, he's talked about rejoicing in Christ, even if it means that there are people that are preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry to cause him pain, right? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether Christ, in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and, and I'm going to rejoice in that. And then he's talked about joy in his imprisonment because, you know, whether he lives or dies, Christ is going to be honored in his body. And so he's rejoicing in that idea. In fact, he makes that statement that we know so well from the book of Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We think about joy differently. We think about joy oftentimes circumstantially. We think about joy as it relates to uh, maybe if you're a football fan, how your football team did this weekend. Or if you're a, a fan of a TV show that's been out, off for the whole summer and now it's coming back on and you're like, yes, they're about to release another season. And, and there's joy that comes along with that. And you feel excited. You feel happy about those things. This is a different type of joy. In fact, the title of the sermon is The Paradox of Joy. Paradox is a word that means something that's unexpected. It's kind of the opposite of what you would expect to be true. And that's the type of joy that we so often find as believers. But before you say, oh, well, this is going to be another encouraging message on how joy shouldn't be found in circumstances, there is a, a, a peace, there's a confidence, there's a trust in Jesus that we can have. There's a, a, a settledness that we can have like Paul has. And to realize that the joy that we can have in Christ is still a joy that's way better even here than all of those other types of joy that I just mentioned. And so Paul is going to discuss this joy. He's going to talk about this paradoxical joy as he begins to transition from his greeting, which is kind of what we've been studying together so far, is Paul welcoming everybody, greeting everybody, and then kind of giving an update on how things have been going with him. Well, now he shifts, and he's going to start to talk to them about his expectations for them. And from 127, which is what we're going to reach back to grab tonight, all the way down through 218, we're not going to preach all, all of that tonight, but from 127 to 218, there's one command that governs the whole thing. And that command is the first phrase in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the target. That's his command. That's his concern for his readers, for the Philippian church. Hey, you know what? I, I want you to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what I'm expecting. That's what I want from you. And then he's going to unpack what that looks like. We're going to see some of that tonight. We're going to see more of that next week as well with the example that Jesus provides. But let's read the text. Pick up in chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to read down through chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation in that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That frames all of that. The gospel. The gospel. Well, if that's true, if that frames everything that we're about to unpack this week and next week together, then we better make sure that we know what the gospel is, yes? If I need to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel, I need to know the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, that comes by what? By grace alone. We could break it down this way. Salvation is this. The gospel is this, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life here on earth, and then he died on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven. Okay, that's phase one of the gospel. Jesus died in your place. It should have been us that died, and not just physically, but eternally. Eternally separated from a just and holy and righteous. And if you were there this weekend for Pastor Elliot's sermon, a high and lofty God, right? We stood no chance before that God. We should have suffered the full wrath from that holy God. But Jesus took our place. He died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven because our sins, guess what he did, y'all? He took our sins on himself on the cross. And then he credited us his righteousness. So that's an exchange that took place at the cross. It's called the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 lays it out for us. There Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin. Y'all, that's my sin. That's your sin. That God the Father put on Jesus Christ the Son. And in exchange, so that what? So that we might become the righteousness of God that we might get his righteousness credited to our account. So phase one of the gospel, Jesus died on the cross so that you can be forgiven of your sins. That's good news for us. But then phase two of the gospel is that we don't worship a dead savior. We worship a resurrected savior, a risen savior. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is predominantly about Paul arguing for the the, the reality that, man, if, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, man, we're all wasting our time here together tonight. Paul says, we of all people are most to be pitied because we're living according to the, 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 the scriptural mandates here and not out there partying like the rest of the world. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, man, we might as well go party because we're still in our sins. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Jesus has been risen from the dead. He has raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those that would follow. So not only did he die on the cross so that your sins are forgiven, but phase two of the gospel is this. He rose from the dead so that you can live with him forever. He rose from the dead so that you can look death in the face whenever that day comes and say, you know what? I'm not afraid of you because this is simply a transition from this world to the next. This is the doorway, as we sing sometimes, to life with Christ. And that life with with Christ is eternal. So the gospel, Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. He rose from the dead so that you can be forgiven. And then there's a third phase to it. And that's this. He's given you his spirit so that you can follow him as your king and your Lord. That happens at the moment of salvation. That's part of the gospel. You get the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your future inheritance, right? This is the gospel. Jesus died on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven, past, present, future. You are declared righteous in God's sight and you cannot sin your way out of his love. 
He rose from the dead so that when you and I die, we're going to live with him forever. That we leave this earth behind to go to be with Christ. And one day he's going to come back. There's going to be a new earth and we're going to be with him forever and ever and ever without end. He rose from the dead, overcame death so that we can overcome death. And then the third phase is he's given us his spirit so that in this interim, while we wait for him to come back or we wait to go to be with him, he's given us his spirit so that we can follow him as our king and our Lord. Okay, that's the gospel. If you guys haven't come to, to terms with that tonight, can I, can I just implore you, do that? Like, let's do that. Let's do that tonight. I won't be offended if you are sitting there right there going, man, I, I, I haven't done it, but I, I need to do that. You can get up and walk out right now with a leader. I will not be offended. It's that important, y'all. Eternity is in the balance. So let me just implore you. Here's the offer from the Lord. Jesus died on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven. He rose from the dead so you can live with him forever. And he's given you his spirit so you can follow him as your Lord and King. That offers for you tonight, okay? And it's important that we have responded to that. Otherwise, what follows is going to be difficult for us. Because again, what follows is what? It's, it's governed by this phrase, conduct yourselves, right? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We have to live in response to the gospel in a, a different kind of a way. We need to stand out. We need to, to respond to what God has done for us through Jesus. And that's what Paul is imploring of his people that he's writing to here. In fact, the, the language here is the language of citizenship. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's live as a citizen of the gospel of Christ. Paul's writing to a church in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. And Rome was a big deal. And to be a Roman citizen was a big deal during this time. In fact, you've read of situations in Paul's life where Paul was put in jail or Paul was, was being prepared to be beaten. And he said, hey, is this how you treat a Roman citizen? And everybody scrambled to go, oh man, what have we done? And they, they, they rushed to apologize and, and free him. See, being a Roman citizen was a good thing. But Paul's saying, Roman citizenship, mm -mm, that's not the focus. You need to live as a gospel citizen. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Represent the gospel well. Live faithful to what Jesus has done for you. Philippians 3.20. Philippians 3.20, Paul there in just two chapters over, one chapter over, says this. Our citizenship is not here, but it is in heaven. That there's been a, a transfer of allegiance. There's been a change in our identity. And that's what's so crucial for us to understand here. That the gospel has saved us and it's transformed our identity and it's transformed our allegiance. And it's done something where it's taken us out of the world and put us into the church, okay? 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, that we were baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were baptized into one body. Uh, grab your Bibles, uh, turn over to Ephesians, one book back from Philippians, Ephesians chapter 2. where Paul describes this transaction, this change in our identity, and this transformation that takes place in, in the, the, the change in our status before God. He describes it in detail here in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, for he himself is our peace. Well, let's get some context. Let's go to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, there's the gospel. He died on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Christ Jesus, is our peace. Who has made us both. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. 
He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. This, this is what I want us to tune into. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, here's the change in identity. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. There's our word with the saints and the members of God's household, built on the foundation of the the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, here's what Paul's picturing here. He's picturing all of us, whether Jew being near, uh, metaphorically speaking, because near to the promises of God, near to the Old Testament, uh, having a, a greater familiarity, or at his time, the Gentiles who are far off that are learning things now on the fly and hearing the gospel. Paul's saying, look, it doesn't matter where you were in proximity to your knowledge about God. Here's what God's done through Jesus. He's grabbing people from all over the place and he's bringing them together and he's building them into a structure. Did you see that language there at the end there? He's building us up and building us into this this structure together to be part of the, the household of God. So there's a transformation that takes place when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, our identity shifts. We are no longer strangers and aliens. We are no longer on the outside, but we have been reconciled. We've been brought together. And you know, y'all, here's the, the reality. This, this community that he's talking about here, this group of, of Christians that he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2, has its most tangible expression in a place called the church. The way we realize this more clearly than anywhere else is through this. It's through being a part of the local body of Christ. The, the word church in the, the Greek comes from a word that means to be called out. It, it was a, a word that was used in the, the non-religious uh, sects to refer to uh, assembling together for like a political cause. That, that all the senators would be called to gather together. They'd be called out from where they were to come gather together for a purpose. Well, the New Testament writers grabbed that word and redeemed it and, and applied it to the people of God. And so what that means is, is we have been called out as individuals. We've been called out of our allegiance to the world and into a family now that is marked by a shared allegiance to Jesus. There's this transformation that's taken place in us, all because of the gospel. As Paul puts it, our citizenship has changed. We're now not living for the here and now, but for the then and there. Mark Dever describes it this way in a book called What is a Healthy Church Member? He says, when a person becomes a Christian, he doesn't just join a local church because it's a good habit for growing in spiritual maturity. He joins a local church because it's the expression of what Christ has made him, a member of the body of Christ. Did you hear that? We join the church because the church is an expression of Ephesians chapter 2, of what Christ has done for us, that we have been made a member of the body of of Christ. Being united to Christ means being united to every Christian, but that universal union must be given a living, breathing existence in a local church. 
Amen to that, okay? So this idea that, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm just, I'm a member of the universal church. I'm a Christian, but I don't, I'm not part of a local church, but I'm I'm part of the people of God. And after all, that's, that's what we're after is just the universal church. Are you saying that one church is the one that everybody has to be a part of? No, but I agree with Mark Dever wholeheartedly here. And I think the Bible agrees more importantly with this. That to be part of the, the, the church, the people of God at the, the 30,000 foot level means that you are part of the, the people of God at the, the 10 foot level. That you are part of a local church. You are part of a church like this. You are involved. Why all of this talk about the gospel? Because it's important foundation material for where Paul is going from 127 all the way down to 218. Unless we understand what he's talking about here. Unless we understand the gospel. And unless we understand that the gospel takes us out of the world and brings us into the church, unless we understand that the gospel radically transforms us, we're not going to understand the call that he then issues from this time forward. Because everything that follows this is about our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Everything from this point forward is not about us following some legalistic standard. It's not about us checking boxes. It's not about us trying harder. Yo, everything that follows from here is a response to Jesus. It's about, man, when I understand what Jesus has done for me, I want to live worthy of that gospel. And so what that looks like to begin with, as we're going to see in the rest of verses 27 through 30, and then the rest of our passage as well, is that life lived in response with the gospel has to begin by loving the bride of Christ. Point number one tonight is this, love the church in response to the gospel. Love the church in response to the gospel. I chose the word love because that's what's necessary in light of what's going to follow here. I didn't say join a church in response to the gospel or commit to a church in response to the gospel or or to be devoted to a church in response. That's that's fine. That's part of this. But what has to fuel all of that is a love for the church. What has to fuel all that is a love for the gospel. What has to fuel all of that is a love for Jesus. Because look where he goes here in in 127 through 30. He says, look, I, I want you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I'm able to come back and see you or if I'm going to be absent, because remember he's saying I'm hard pressed between the two. I don't know whether I'm going to die or live. I think I'm going to live. But he's saying, look, just in case, y'all, here's what I want to hear about you. He goes on. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them, the opponents of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Again, the paradox of joy. Paul's saying, I want you to to love Jesus, respond to the gospel, and, and what that looks like is I want you to, to lean in hard to the church, to strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel, because you know what? Opposition is coming, and you're going to have opponents. And you know what? I don't want you to be afraid of them, but you're going to run into some conflict, even conflict like I've experienced. And, and Paul's writing this from a prison cell, not knowing if he's going to live or die tomorrow, okay? So that's the level that we're at here as he's talking about this. And that's why if we're going to make it through, if we're going to do this, we got to love the local church. We got to love the the body of Christ. 
It can't just be that we've joined it under obligation. It can't just be that we've joined it because mom and dad wanted us to. It can't just be that we've joined it because we have always thought, well, that's what we should do. And it can't just be that we've joined it because we're afraid of the alternative. We've got to love the church. And we have to understand that that the church is, is the people that God, again, has, has called out from this world that he is building together. And that's manifested for us, for you and I, for you and me, in, in this body, in this group, in our services on the weekends, on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. This is our church that we get to be a part of. And it's important because, again, as, as Paul's writing this from prison, he's saying, look, opposition is going to come. Well, can we be sure of that, Paul? Yes, we can. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Paul, or Paul. When you're just studying a lot of Paul, Paul just comes out. At least it's not Hebrews that I'm calling Paul. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. John says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay, so now he's defined the world for us. Not people, but the, the, the powers and the system that's at work in this world. Right? And it's what? It's the, the lust of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life. All of that, he says, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so we live in that world but Pastor PJ, I thought God called us out of the world to be part of the church. Yes, but Jesus says we're still in the world. We're not of the world, right? But we're still going to live and move and have our being here for now until we live and move and have our being in the kingdom of God. And so we have to navigate a world that is inherently opposed to God, which means as the church, we're going to face opposition. Jesus said this, John 15, 18. John 15, 18. Jesus said, if the world hates you, I'm sorry. Blame me. No. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So don't be surprised, in other words. You're following me. The world hated me. They're going to hate you for following me. There's the verse. I put it down here. John 17, 14. John 17, 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And so opposition will come. And the way that God has designed Christianity by his goodness and his kindness is he has designed Christianity so that we would be part of a body of Christ to encounter that opposition together and not by ourselves. So that we can have a group to stand firm with. If we are the called out ones, no longer living as citizens of this world, but as citizens of the world to come, we're going to find ourselves drawing the ire of the powers and authorities that exist in this world. They're going to come for us. What does Peter call us? Do you, do you remember from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11? 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's how he wants us to think about ourselves in this world. Don't be at home here. You're not at home here. Rather, I want you to think that, that you're a sojourner. You're an exile in this world. Or the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews eleven thirteen talks about some of the faithful Old Testament saints. And he says, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And y'all, we are nonetheless in Christ, strangers and exiles on this earth. And so this, this world is, is not going to love us because they don't love our Savior. And this is why Paul wants us to be committed to be all in with the church. This is why we have to love the local church. He wants us, look at the scriptures there, the description, 
words. Descriptions there, back in 127. Standing firm in one spirit. This is the idea of being firmly convicted and resolved, especially in the matter of your beliefs. Know what you believe, he's saying. Stand firm together in one spirit. And then he goes on, he says, with one mind, striving side by side together. The, the, the language there in the Greek is struggling, struggling alongside each other. Man, that's so good. That's so important. Sometimes when I have a lack of judgment, I go running with Pastor Lucas. That guy's like, he's a machine. Like, I think we have sentient machines already, and I think one of them is a pastor on staff here. Um, but sometimes I'll go running with him, and I'll have some judgment. And uh, we'll go, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't tire until his battery runs out. And then Heather plugs him in at the end of the night and he's good to go the next day. But on the runs I've gone on, he, his battery was good. And, uh, and yet at the same time, as I'm going with him and, and I'm struggling a little bit more than he is alongside him, it's, it's helpful to have somebody with you when you're working out because there's a, there's a companionship there that pushes you a little bit further, right? You guys who have, have been to the gym, I don't do that, but you guys that have been to the gym, Right you, to to go and work out with a partner with a, a partner with a lifting partner or something like that is helpful because they're going to push you further than you would go by yourself. That's the idea here: struggling side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he says, "Not frightened in anything by your opponents, not caught off guard, not intimidated, not startled by your opponents." Peter says in First Peter four twelve, "Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes a, a, among you, as though something strange were happening to you." That's what. What Paul's saying back in Philippians, he's saying, don't be frightened by your opponents. It's going to come. Look, you've got a, a body of Christ. You've got a family here. Love the local church. Be involved in it. Strive side by side together. Struggle together in this world. And don't be frightened, uh, frightened by your opponents. Because he goes on and he says, it's a, that, that consistency, that firmness, is a sign of their destruction. This unity that we're talking about, it comes in response to, as I said at the beginning, the gospel. And he's alluding to that here. We're contending for the gospel. We're standing firm for the faith of the gospel. And when we stand firm, it's a clear sign to our enemies of their destruction. Now, who's he talking about there? Well, I think there's a, a few groups that he has in mind. Ephesians 6.12. Ephesians 6.12 defines them this way. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think those are some of the enemies that Paul has in mind here. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces at work. But here's what's so cool. I said this is all about the gospel, right? Because then in Colossians 2.15, Paul says this. Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, those same ones that we're wrestling against. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God the Father, that is. Disarmed them in Jesus. So that what? So that now we can say with Paul in Romans 8, 38 and 39, Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life 
Now listen to this. Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so why can you stand firm in the face of opposition? Why do you not need to back down? Why can you struggle together? And sometimes it is a struggle in this world. Why can you keep doing that and not look for the emergency exit or the the parachute ripcord to get out of here faster? Why can you keep doing that? Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for you. Because God through Christ has already triumphed over your enemies that you're going to face in this world. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be frightened. And your perseverance through all this. He says, man, that's a sign to them of their destruction. But for y'all, it's a sign of your salvation in that from God. Four, verse 29, it has been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Did you see the language there? It's been gifted to you. God has given you the gift of suffering for the sake of Jesus. And that's crazy to think about. But that's the reality of the world that we live in. That's the reality of being an alien, a stranger in this world, or as Bunyan put it, a pilgrim in this world. Acts 14.22. Acts 14.22, it says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Because why? Because Peter in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Y'all, suffering will come, opposition will come, but God has placed us into a body of Christ to be able to stand together in the midst of it and through it. That's a good thing. Responding well to the gospel starts with loving the church that God has purchased through the blood of Christ. But Paul continues in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, read Paul saying, if the gospel is true and you've experienced it, okay, that's his setup there. Then verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul must have had his thesaurus open as he's writing that verse two, as he's sitting there in jail. Look at how many times he says something about being united together. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, right? See, here's the the, the thing. Our love for the church's response to the gospel, so too is our pursuit of her unity, the unity of the bride of Christ. And so we love the church in response to the gospel. And the second thing that we're to do to live worthy of the gospel of Christ, point two, is to worship Jesus through pursuing unity. We're to worship Jesus through pursuing unity with one another and unity in the the bride of Christ. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, look, if there's any encouragement in Christ, that that right there should encourage you because there is. Not only are you going to share in his sufferings, but you're also going to share in his encouragement that that you can know that you're going to go to be with him someday. Why? Because Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. He rose so that you will live with him forever. And he's given you his spirit so that you can follow him and persevere through it all. And so you can have encouragement in Christ. If there's comfort in love, I think there's comfort to be found in love, yes? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That, that's, that's comforting, yes? Or Romans chapter 5, where Paul says that God has poured his love out 
through the Spirit, which He has lavished upon us. And that, that, that's, that's comforting. Comfort and love. Okay, there's, there's encouragement in Christ. There's comfort and love. How about participation in the Spirit? That's, that word participation is the word koinonia. It means fellowship. And here he's saying, if, if you've been brought into the body of Christ, we've all been baptized into one body. It says in the text there, by the Spirit of God. And so if there's participation together by the Spirit in the Spirit, the answer is, okay, yes, on all of those things, there, there is. And then he says, I want you to be united together. We already looked at Ephesians 2, talking about that process of unity. Uh, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's to the right in your Bibles. Hebrews, James, and then 1 Peter. If you hit 2 Peter, back up one. 1 Peter chapter 2, pick up in verse 4 with me for a second. He's writing to the church, to Christians here. He says this, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's talking about Jesus there. So the honor is for the, those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now listen to this, verse nine. But you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He has called you out. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The unity that the gospel produces in the church is this single-minded focus on proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We've, we've made it really hard when we don't really need to make it all that hard. We live in a, a time where in, at, at this point in time in America, it's, it's pretty comfortable to be a part of the church. Nobody's arresting us, nobody's imprisoning us, nobody's beating us, nobody's flogging us, nobody's really even mocking us, nobody's fining us. It, it, it's pretty easy. And so what that's created, it's created an atmosphere where we have, have stepped into the luxury of arguing over some pretty trivial things that a hundred years from now aren't going to matter. They're just not. And we've given up the, so much unity, being single-minded, as Paul's talking about here, and having a, 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 the same love for one another, and it's, it's hurting our, if, in, in impacting our effectiveness as witnesses for Jesus. Because the world is seeing a divided church. Now, there may be reasons for you to not worship in one church over another church because there's, there's doctrinal differences and preferences that, hey, you know what, Just it's wise to worship with people that kind of agree on those issues. I'm talking about the fact that, man, we need to come together on, on the, the gospel. Like, here's the deal. Here's where we're at, y'all. Together for the gospel is done because we couldn't get together for the gospel. 
Imagine the work that could be done for Jesus if the church stopped arguing over petty things and started saying, how do we reach the loss for Jesus? You guys have an opportunity to change that. Right? I mean, you, you do. You've got an opportunity to begin to, to do things differently within the body of Christ. Not by jettisoning doctrine. Not by jettisoning truth and saying, let's just agree together and who cares about those things. No, but by choosing to say, hey, you know what? We may not agree on all the finer points of all the things that the dead guys argued about back in the day. But as far as going out and reaching the lost for Jesus, let's link arms together. You guys have an opportunity to be a part of a church where you can look across the, the, the street at the other church that's, that's down the block from you guys that may do things a little bit differently on the second issues, but as far as the first issues, as far as the gospel goes, they're, they're lockstep with you. You have the opportunity to, to look down the, the street at them and say, let's, let's partner with them because we live in a, a, a community of three million people and how many of them don't know Jesus? We need to worship Christ through pursuing this unity. And that's what Paul's talking about as he's writing to the church at Philippi. He's not writing to Baptists versus Methodists or, or Baptists versus Presbyterians or Presbyterians versus Episcopalians. He's writing to the, the followers of Jesus saying, have a single-minded focus. What is that focus? That we would proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. That's where the unity comes from, y'all. It comes from the gospel. Being of the same mind, he says. That means majoring on the majors. That's what I've just been talking about. In Philippians 4.3, he's going to encourage these two women that are bickering with each other. He's going to say, hey, look, agree in the Lord together. Focus on the, 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 the common ground that you have and leave these bickering arguments behind you. It's the same phrase there. Be of the same mind. 2 Corinthians 13.11, same phrase. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, agree with one another. Romans 15.5, same phrase. Romans 15.5, be in harmony with one another. Y'all, we need that here, desperately. Because there's so much work to be done to declare the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Being of the same mind, having the same love. Man, we're gonna see this in Christ's example next week. Displayed so clearly for us. But here's the paradigm for us, right? Love experienced from God produces in us a love for God that overflows in a love towards others. So, so let me say that again. Love that we've received from God produces a love for God that overflows in a love for others that manifests itself in unity in the body of Christ. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, being all in together. This is not one foot in, one foot out in the church. It's like, it's not going, well, I'm, I'm giving Christianity a try. You don't give Christianity a try. Christianity is full send. It is being all in, being in full accord and of one mind. And y'all, that unity that we're talking about here, that Paul's arguing for in this passage, doesn't come from using the same Bible translation. It doesn't come from having your pastors all go to the same seminaries. It does not come from wearing a label of some dead guy who lived a long time ago that produced the doctrines of grace. It doesn't come from any of that. That's not where the unity comes from. The unity comes from the gospel. That's what unites us together. That's where our focus is. That's what we need to get a hold of. That's what we need to wake up and see as the church in the United States, as local churches. We need to start saying, how can we partner together to reach more people for Jesus? Because when we get to heaven, there's not going to be an award ceremony for the local church to save the most people. 
We're not competing for souls. Well, we are. We're competing against the enemy for souls, not against brothers and sisters in Christ. One theologian put it this way, the greatest need in the church today is the gospel. Yes, that's true. It is. The greatest need in the church today is the gospel. The gospel is not only news for a perishing world. It's the message that forms us, sustains us, and animates the church. Apart from the gospel, the church has nothing to say. That is nothing to say that cannot be said by some other human agency. The gospel distinguishes the church from the world, defines her message and mission in the world, and steals her people against the fiery darts of the evil one and the false allurements of sin. The gospel is absolutely vital to a vibrant, joyous, persevering, hopeful, and healthy Christian in a Christian church. So essential is the gospel to the Christian life that we need to be saturated in it in order to be healthy church members. I love that. Love that. We need to be saturated in it. If you could squeeze our church, what would come out is the gospel. The gospel is the overarching universal mission of God's people on earth. Every true church has one mission. And that is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And Paul's calling for unity in that. As a, a, the, the appropriate response to what? To the gospel. To what Jesus has done for us. This is how we live worthy of the gospel. We, we don't isolate ourselves and, and get into these holy huddles. No, 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 no. We, we need to be joining arms, standing firm with one mind, side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, your doctrinal statement. By this all people will know that you're my disciples, your church polity. By this all people will know that you're my disciples, your eschatology, what you think is going to happen in the end times. By this all people will know that you're my disciples, your view of baptism. Uh-uh, not there. Jesus says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples, your love for one another. Y'all, let's, let's hear that. And let's begin to put that into practice a little bit more. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Worship Jesus through pursuing unity. Think, though, for a moment about the negative list that we so often find in Scripture, like this one in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. Paul writes, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find that you, are, that you are not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be, here's the, the list here, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. Paul's saying, I don't want to find that in you, church at Corinth. Okay, let's look at the next one then, which is Ephesians 4, 31. Paul says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Last, Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Did you ever notice that so many of these anti-gospel characteristics that the Bible talks about are anti-unity characteristics? That they have to do with our relationships with one another? 
that that's, that's so much of, of what we're called to as a church has to do with how we're interacting horizontally in our relationships with others. Yes, there's the, the, the individual personal holiness side of things that, that will be addressed in scripture as well. But so often that overflows into how we are either standing united or standing divided. And so many of these things that are up on this screen have to do with hurting unity and promoting disunity in the church. Again, we're supposed to be worshiping Jesus through pursuing unity. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. It's one book to the right of Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. God's electric power company, which will let you plug in your cars, by the way. All right, Colossians chapter 3. There's not going to be electric cars in heaven. Sorry, Pastor Kellen. Colossians chapter 3. All right, listen to the scriptures here. Where am I going to start? I'm gonna, uh, we'll just start at the top. If then you have been raised with Christ. So Paul's talking to Christians. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Gospel, okay? Impact of the gospel. You have been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. You are going to be raised with him when he comes back. You will be like him. You will be with him, right? Gospel. Now, listen to the implications of that then in the context of the church and unity and disunity. He picks up in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, notice the language of unity. There's no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in, in all. The gospel is bringing us together, uniting us. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. Do you see how it's dripping with calls to unity there? In response to what? The gospel. Okay? This passage from Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Does that sound familiar from our, our passage in Philippians? Worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all." In both of those texts that I just read, the, the main threat, the key threat to the unity of the body can be summed up in one four-letter word, and that four-letter word is 
self. Self. When, when Christ saves us, the self dies. In fact, Paul says that, as we'll see here in a moment in Romans chapter 6. But this is the threat that Paul's addressing in, in Philippians as well. Look at Philippians 2.3. Right after talking about how he wants us to be united. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Here's the, the thing. The gospel kills the self. Romans 6.6. 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The gospel kills the old self. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. The old man is gone. The gospel kills self. Matthew 16.24, here it is from Jesus. Matthew 16.24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which is an execution implement, and follow me. Y'all, there's little more antithetical to the gospel than a Christian who seeks his own advancement through the church. Our final point tonight is this. Kill selfish ambition with the gospel. Kill selfish ambition with the gospel. Paul's corrective to selfish ambition and conceit is humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He goes on, what does that look like? What does that mean? Does it mean that I have to hate myself? No. He describes it in verse 4. This is what that means. Let each of you look not only to your own interest. You got that covered. We don't have to preach on that. But look to the interest of others. This selflessness that we're talking about here is going to take center stage next week when we look at Jesus' example. But this selflessness, it, it requires daily reminding ourselves of the gospel, daily reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us because it's contrary to our flesh. And look, there will come a day when, when our flesh is down for the count and won't get back up off the mat. But if you don't keep vigilant, if you let your, your guard down and think, I'm good, I don't, need to, I don't need to be on guard, you're going to find that the self is going to get right back up and blindside you. So to have the selflessness, we need to always be mindful of the gospel of Jesus. Kill selfish ambition with the gospel. This is a selfless, selflessness that, lo that looks like this. This is a selflessness that's willing to be inconvenienced to serve someone else in the church. That's how you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. A brother or sister needs a ride to church and you're thinking, oh man, I'm going to have to leave earlier to go get them to be able to get there in time and then the gas and I don't know if they're going to pay me for gas. This is a selflessness that's, that's willing to say, I'm going to go do that out of a love for them. This is a selflessness that's willing to sacrifice time and money to help a brother or sister. This is a selflessness that is willing to follow up with a prayer request that was shared on Sunday during small groups on Wednesday or Thursday that week. It's a selflessness that chooses to be intentional about remembering that person and reaching out to them and saying, hey, I, I've been praying for you. How, how are you doing? This is a selflessness that's willing to lovingly confront a brother or sister in gentleness when you see sin in their life without being worried about, well, maybe they're going to think I'm a jerk. This is a selflessness that's willing to serve the church body 
This is a selflessness that's going to say no to liberty sometimes for the good of a brother or sister in Christ. This is a selflessness that's going to put the needs of others before your own. You remember how Paul started this letter? Paul and Timothy, what? Slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul's practicing what he preaches here. Again, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by how you love each other. And that love is a selfless concern for the good of others. It's the paradigm that Jesus provides. We'll look at it in detail next week, but Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's a selflessness that's the right response to the gospel, remember? That's what we're talking about. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that life is characterized by this selflessness, by humility. Humility is this. Here's C.J. Mahaney's quote. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Y'all, if you did not hear Pastor Mike Elliott's sermon this weekend, let me beg you, plead you, implore you, go listen to it. Because he talks about this. And it's so good. It's so good. As he talks about the loftiness, the high and exalted status of God, And here we are lowly and contrite. And how are those two things reconciled? Through Christ. Spoiler alert. But go listen to that. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So here's what that means. That means humility doesn't look at the gospel and simply say, wow, thank you, God, for the gospel. It's not wrong to thank God for the gospel. We should thank God for the gospel. No, but humility looks at the gospel and asks, how? Why? Humility is is gratitude that's fueled by awe. Humility is, is wonder that's fueled by brokenness over who we are before a holy God and the fact that he would love us that much to give us Jesus, to forgive our sins. And then that humility, when, when we own that, that mindset, that humility, and we come here, with that humility, we're looking around going, man, I, I want to love people the way that I've been loved. I want to serve people the way that, that I've been served by the God of all creation. We kill selfish ambition with the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. We talked a lot about the church but this wasn't really a sermon about the church. We talked a lot in this sermon about how we treat one another in unity, but that's not what this sermon was about. The sermon at its core is about the gospel. At its core, it's about Jesus. Everything else we covered tonight, talking about unity and not being selfish and so forth and so on, It's only significant, it's only important if we know the gospel. If you know that Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you can be forgiven, that he rose from the dead so that you can live with him forever, and that he's given you his spirit to follow him as your Lord and King. If you know that, then he's called you out, and he's put you in this body called the church, and we get to do this thing together. We get to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel until the Lord comes back for his bride. Let's pray. God, we are people who are easily distracted. We are people who 
can be easily divided. We are people who can easily major on the minors. We are people who can be divisive. We are people who can be prone to selfish ambition and conceit. Father, forgive us for that. And still in us an ever-present awareness of the, the greatness of Jesus, of the greatness of the message of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone that comes by grace alone. Keep us ever mindful of the good news that Christ has paid the penalty on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven, that he's risen from the dead so that we will live with him forever and that he's given us his spirit to follow him as Lord and King. God, we don't know what the future holds. We pray that you would give us continued favor in this nation for as long as you see fit so that we can go about freely and plant churches and tell people about Jesus and proclaim the gospel and talk openly and carry Bibles and read the Bible and distribute Bibles and we just ask that you would give us a, a prolonged period of time with that, and yet we know it's not guaranteed. And God, just to, to corporately confess, we as a church have squandered so much of what we've been given to this point. Arguing and, and bickering or just simply being content to be comfortable by ourselves. Lord, awaken us. Stir in us a desire to join together in unity, to stand side by side, to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Help us, Father, I pray, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. We can't do it by ourselves. And we can't do it if we don't know the gospel. It's only possible if you, by your spirit, continue to renovate our lives, continue to work on our hearts to mold us, shape us, conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.